Trade Houseology is the supplier of choice for professionals seeking designer furniture, lighting and accessories. Saving you time spent on sourcing, admin and logistics so you can focus on creating beautiful interiors. Hello and welcome to the Interior Design Business, the monthly podcast produced by the Interior Design Community for the Interior Design Community. And today we're podcasting in front of a live audience of designers here at the International Interior Design Show, Decorex. Yes, welcome to the Seminar Theatre here at Decorex. We're delighted to be here and to be joined by so many people today. My name is Jeff Hayward, and I'm joined by my co-presenter, Susie Rumbold, Creative Director of Tasuta Interiors and past President of the British Institute of Interior Design, as together we examine what makes a happy and healthy home. Welcome to the Interior Design Business. We're delighted to have with us two very special guests who are both experts on home, well-being, happiness and interior design. Cinzia Moretti, Director of Moretti Interior Design, and Phoebe Aldre of Smart Style Interiors. Welcome to you both. Before we begin, Cinzia, can you tell us a bit about your background? Sure. So um, I found my company about 12 years ago. Um, originally, I come from a theatre background. I used to be a ballet dancer. And that's how it pushed me to actually become an interior designer to express something in art that's not just dancing. And um, I work together with my husband, who is a lighting designer, and we're trying to create happy homes for our clients, introducing lighting and good design. Fantastic. And Phoebe, how did you arrive at this point? Um, Well, ironically, I was originally an actress, um, and there was a point where being unemployed a lot wasn't really working out for me. <laughs> so I wanted to stay in something creative, but I'd also been working a bit in marketing and realized I quite liked running a project. And I, at that point, just dropped everything I was doing and went and retrained to do interior design. That was 17 years ago, so I guess it worked out. Um, yeah, and that's kind of what took me to here. <laughs> amazing, amazing. Now, the happy home, Susie. What's your understanding of well-being and its impact on interior design? Okay, so back in 1971, an American researcher called Roger Ulrich began tracking the outcomes of patients recovering from routine surgery in a suburban hospital in Pennsylvania. Now, half of these patients had rooms that overlooked the local park. The other half were in rooms that just looked out across a brick wall. They couldn't see anything apart from a blank brick wall on the other side of the light well. To his astonishment, and he tracked these patients for many years, Ulrich discovered that the ones that were looking at the park achieved faster recovery times, spent far less time in hospital, and actually needed far fewer painkillers than the ones left staring at the wall. Since then, further studies have gone on to support these findings. Human beings, it appears, have an innate connection with nature. So... If we believe this connection to be important, how should we, as interior designers, approach the design of interior spaces, both public and private, that will improve physical and mental health and enhance the well-being and happiness of our clients? Chinzia, what do we mean by environmental psychology? Well, what environmental psychology means is, uh, as a human being, we are very much connected to our surroundings and our environmental um, We are connected with nature and we have found out if we design something that it comes from our background emotions. So discovery what was our journey, our life and how we can express who really are inside in tears that makes a happy home. It's, it's, It's like bringing what is our background emotions, how we used to leave the house when we were kids and what memories we have that can actually um, have inside our environment that makes us happy. And I I guess that has a real real knock-on effect on people's well-being generally. Absolutely. How does that then feed into the current kind of buzzword 
people are hearing all the time about biophilia. What's biophilic design? Um, biophilic design is, um, it originally came from, I've written the name down, for biophilia, which is um, something which was discovered by Edward O. Wilson. And that was kind of in the 80s where he realized there was a massive emotional connection that people have to nature. So walking in a wood to being in a field that, that, that just brought about a lot of well-being. Um, so biophilic design is where you are actually looking at doing that within your environment. So on a big scale, architecturally, it's opening up to beautiful views. I think they sort of said in Finland that your happiness increased if you were looking at the sea. Mm-hmm. However, we all know that not all of us can have you know architecture that does that. So then the next question is, okay, so how can we push those happy biophilic um, buttons by doing other things in our designs and so then some of it's like mimicking nature it's it's picking on particular colors you know blues of skies um normally i think dark blue is meant to be quite bad because it's like stormy skies but a light blue is beautiful summer's days um you know leafy wallpapers so there's various different degrees you can do it to but from what i understand there really are physical impacts of, of biophilic design. I mean, it's been proven in studies to do things like reduce people's pulse rate, um, to slow their heart rate, to reduce their stress levels, to to increase skin conductivity, and also to increase the brain waves. Yeah. So, you know, it has really kind of a lot of impact on, on people's thinking and their ability to concentrate. Children, for example, at school, you know, all these things. Uh, it's, it's, it's a really, it's, it's not just kind of about happy feelings it's really quite physical impact yeah it has a huge amount of effect on people and um but interestingly we're only just beginning to discuss it in homes but a lot of offices have known about this for a long Mm. time and they've been using it to increase your productivity (laughs) um, which isn't quite as sexy as saying you're in a happy home and you know it's the living walls in places like um, anthropology which therefore makes you a little bit happier and then hey i'm buying two dresses um so it's been being used around us for quite a long time but now we're beginning to discuss it in our homes. Yeah, that's yeah. really interesting. So what are the elements of nature that human beings most respond to positively? What are the things that we should be trying to bring into our environments? Well, we do a lot with plants. Yep. We tend course. to see that lots of people actually, uh, if they have some green inside their home, they feel more happy because they, need, they feel connected with nature. And discovery, I found that if just one hour in contact with any elements of nature increase your productivity of 20% that just in one hour. Well, I know there's a lot of talk at the moment about forest bathing, isn't there? Have you yeah. seen any of that where people go out to the middle of the forest and they just lie on the ground under the trees for hours and, and just you know absorb all this wonderful kind of... And they come out completely chilled yeah. and calm and... Yeah, yeah. We, we actually just open a sister company called Open, uh, Open Habitat where we're going to do that. We're going to create glass rooms into the garden so that people can leave the fall season all the time in the garden, doubts the weather, and enjoy the connection. Because genetically, we are connected to nature. So what Biophilix does is actually created a connection that has always been there, but we've forgotten with the cities, the stress, the, the work. And if you notice, a lot of people go have to go on holiday to re-energize because they need a connection with nature so when it comes back to the environmental psychologist because say what makes you happy going on holiday where do you go on holiday do you go mountain do you go seaside because that actually can be reproduced inside the homes so some of the other elements then probably you would find when you go on holiday i mean i'm just thinking about things like even things like wind um and and sunlight and you know fresh air yeah, absolutely. Even the, the light, how it's been used inside the homes, can be uh, replicate the some path of the circadian cycle, and that will make someone feel better as well. So, can you give us an example of where you've used that sort of strategy in one of your projects? In terms of lighting, so for instance, if you're using the bedroom more t- uh, towards the night, you're not going to you put in the bedroom very uh, bright uh, light, high uh, Kelvin temperature, because you know that's for the, the cycle of the sun, you're going to use the, the, sun, the, the light in the sun is warmer. So the, the light you're going to use in a bedroom is much warmer. And the, what you're going to use maybe in a living room that you're going to use at midday when the sunlight is more bluish. So that, that will change as well the way you affect, uh, feel the, the, the room. 
I remember there was one of the Cedia projects, Jeff, you probably remember this one, where it was a, a home that some people had built for themselves way up in the north of Scotland. And this couple both, they were both academics as far as I remember, and they both spent a lot of time in the States. So they were always coming back from America on the red eye and, and being jet lagged, you know, up to their eyeballs and then beyond. And they actually had a, a lighting scheme built into their house that enabled them mm -hmm. to ease themselves through the jet lag. So they, yeah. had a, they had a smart home system that they could kind of turn on and it would change the light levels so they could achieve total blackout, blackout on their windows but then change the light levels internally to kind of get them over the jet lag mm -hmm. hump. And I think it, it was, again, it was really, yeah. really... It's very important. It affects us mentally yeah. more than what we think. Yeah, absolutely. I think our circadian rhythm um, is something which is really important and we've kind of stepped a bit away from understanding how we work as people um, and so it's things like the change of light um, affects how we approach you know mornings afternoons evenings and our body will go through that clock and if we're not taking care of it or supporting it our body goes a bit skewed so you know in jet lag you're kind of waking up all over the place and this is the same true in sort of in, in bedrooms and stuff the way we the way we wake up in the morning to the light actually also affects how we go to sleep yeah. because we're not setting our body clocks right then it's absolutely snookered by the time we get to bedtime so do you think that sort of that the setting of light levels particularly in areas where people are resting and relaxing is key i think it's that almost um our bodies designed so the circadian rhythm was designed that when we were out living in our caves, that our body wakes up when it's beginning to get dawn. So it actually slowly wakes up before you're actually awake. And then you work your way through the day and then it comes down to slowly getting not only the light beginning to go, but also the temperature dropping. And so that our bodies are going, hey, okay, right. So that's beginning to set me up for sleep. Well, now we're in an environment where we've got the telly on till 11 and the lights up and, you know, we're keeping ourselves quite toasty and then warm. And we, we get into bed and watch, and we get, play yeah. with our computer for another yeah, hour. And, you kind yeah. of, and then you've got that blue light, which is meant to be just the worst, um, coming off phones and stuff like that. And then we go, gosh, I can't sleep. And that's precisely why. It's because we haven't really set ourselves up to sleep and our environments are huge to that. So it's sounding like interior designers that have a, you know, a big role to play in actually perhaps educating their clients in the way that their environments may be impacting on them yeah I think it's huge and and, and sometimes it's I, I always kind of think it's we need to stop putting people at the forefront of design instead of style and that um when we're you know talking to people you know my clients about you know well how do you sleep how do you do this how do you do the other um, it's beginning to look at how their bodies are working and then how we answer it as a designer. And then that, if, if their bodies are supporting them, then their mental health's a little bit better. And when your mental health's a little bit better, you're a little bit better. Happier. And it's yeah, just yeah. a round circle. How easy was it to embed this in your design thinking, though? Because it sounds like you've got to do a lot of research to actually understand it. Yeah, I found that, one, I'm a bit of a nerd. Um, welcome. Um, <laughs> So sitting down and reading, you know, scientific reports really wasn't that much of a strain for me. It was kind of a bit bizarre. Um, and I loved it. And I found it was just really exciting to know that this skill that I had could be used for good. And instead of just going, oh, God, I've got to figure out what's going on this autumn. Is it, is it beige? Is it brown? Is it blah, blah, blah? And then I could suddenly realize I could, I could actually make a real impact to the people who are in my environments. And so I started to read more and I got thirstier for reading more. And then you realize there's a lot out there, uh, all sounding like they're very different theories. But when you begin to write them down, you realize they're sort of talking about the same thing. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, well, when I was at university, actually going to something that was called biomimicry that's more or less biophilics by actually studying nature and see how nature solved the problems replicated in architecture. And that got fascinated for me. And I started, like Phoebe, researching, reading, reading, reading. I said, I can actually apply this to my clients because it's about design for the clients, not for the house, really. Um, so, yeah, that's how I go into it. And um, I never stopped since. Just, I was just going to say, were there any other things? We sort of touched on light being obviously key, mm -hmm. and we were talking before about plants and air, but, I mean, there are other things. I mean, one of the most fundamental ones that interests me, because it's, it's very, you know, harking right back to cavemen, is fire. Yeah. 
Um, I think it's about the warmth, when we talk about it in kinetic light as well, when you get the, you know, the candles and the fire and, and so that, that kind of movement and that warmth and that orangey glow. Um, and then ironically, I think one of the, one of the five elements of Feng Shui, fire is normally um, talked about as one of them and how it's meant to balance out with other things, is, is part of the equation. But sometimes we don't always design with fire because you're normally only using it in one room. Um, or maybe two um, so you're not going to you know unless you're a really lucky lucky person you're not unlikely to have a fire in your bedroom, in or, bedroom. or the guest room <laughs> I, mean, I think that's the thing you know, you've got all these elements that exist in nature and it may not you touched on this earlier it may not be possible to actually bring them into the home in their original form because otherwise you know we'd all be burning our houses down um, but I'm just wondering I mean even taking something like sort of we were talking about air and wind you know if you've got if you've got I mean, the, the, the real way to, to bring air into your house is to open a window. But if you live on a main road and you can't actually do that, then it's just managing systems like air conditioning, for you do, example. You sort of look at the fire, you know, the, the, the many different elements, and it's just that sometimes of the recreating them. But you've also got to remember that in nature, fire, fire is great when you're huddling around one, but fire is also danger. Absolutely. And so there's that real borderline that it's like, you know, if you use this, go down right into the decorating element of it. If you use a little bit of red, it goes an awfully long way. Um, so sometimes if you're using a lot of red, it's a bit almost overstimulating because our body's going, whoa, this is a little bit dangerous. Um, and so it's that balance of it all. And um, so that's the thing. Yeah, we, you know, you are losing a little bit of candle, a little bit of kinetic, a little bit of warmth. But if you go O2T, then your whole body just goes, whoa, 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 enough, whoa, 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 whoa. enough, I'm running away now. But again, it's going back, if the actually client likes the fact of fire or there being something in the background, they actually were scared of fire. So you will not put that in the house, in, the, in their homes, anything that remind them of fire, but maybe water or something else. So that's what's come back to actually understanding to really personalizing the psychology it. of the yes, clients. Yes, yes, yeah. absolutely. Um, what, is, what about biomimicry? Can you talk us through that as a concept? So biomimicry is a discipline that's used to, to learn from nature. So they study nature, how nature solved the problems, uh, animals, and how they create some animals like a jellyfish, they create some electricity, or some uh, um, whales uh, have some special things that they can create a wind when they, they, they swim. So they're creating the same thing in uh, some uh, uh, new technology for renewable energy. So it actually study animals, study nature, how everything existed before with no problems and replicate that in architecture and trying to find the technology they use that. Can you give us a, an example? Or? So, for instance, um, if you go into the desert, there are some um, animals like beetles that, of course, in the desert doesn't rain that much. But as soon as it rains, their particles or their skin, uh, they retain water. So they use, they're trying to study how that particle that's so simple, but they can retain the water and use that in the countries, in the roofs, so where there's not much rain, and then the rain, the water can be distributed in the houses. So my roof is going to be made of trapped beetles. No, no, just right, just, <laughs> just the technology, just right, technology, <laughs> or like the cobweb is so um, is so strong. Yes, and trying to use that existing in nature, yes, in, yes. in in the in yeah. the technology for homes as well. So learning from nature, that's where our re-environment is, and to use less chemicals but more. So that applies, I guess, more to building materials and. And technology. technology rather but, than, than yes. sort of perhaps design elements in a home. Yes, no, I think that with biophilix, biomimicry, they both get together. Um, I don't know if you um, have seen the new headquarter Amazon in Seattle. They actually created a kind of um, a bubble with pentagons to get lots of oh, natural light. I've seen pictures of it, yes. But the way they created it as well is introducing biomimicry uh, techniques how things were done in nature. So they combined the biophilics and the biomimicry. At the end, it's the same thing. It's a love for nature, learning from nature. Can you just prove to me that this makes a difference and makes people happier? Well, the more you are outside, the more you feel happy. If you are stressed at work, you want to go outside again, fresh air, and go into the park and say, I need to the, the fresh air to, to breathe and think the same you would do in your home if you're just in a home where there's no connection absolutely with, with nature and it's just a black canvas white walls and nothing they connected to the outdoor you will not feel comfortable at all. Arab have re just produced a report on um, 
revising the way that timber is used in buildings in the light of all this cross-laminated timber and things that's coming to the fore now. And this is one of the things, you know, is biophilia just snake oil, for example? And, and there has actually been some really kind of rock-hard science now to show that actually you put people in a natural environment using natural materials and it does reduce their pulse rate yeah. and their heart rate and their skin conductivity and their, you know, it, it's, it, it really is, it's quite physical, the effects. Yeah. So it's, it's not just, it isn't just mumbo jumbo. Yeah. What then, about you, Phoebe? Have you got any examples of how you've saved clients? <laughs> well, it's always really difficult. What are you going to do? Burst in like three months later and go, God damn it, are you happier? <laughs> so, it's normally not if you burst into the house. Um, it's, it, it's sort of a sometimes small changes. Um, it's the fact that people just, even you can just see their shoulders kind of relax a bit more. They feel contented. They feel happier. Um, we can't always place our fingers on what makes us happy. We can always know exactly what's making us miserable. Um, and that's a hard testimonial to ask for. But it's when you ask about the small things, like, are you home more? Yes. Do you love coming home from work? And I think it's one of my favorite ones, a client who said, I come back from holiday and I walk into my home and it just makes me happy. I'm glad to be home. Whereas a lot of people get back from holiday and go, Ugh. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I want to be back in my nice hotel suite, please. I don't want to be here. Why am I here? And what about colour? You talked earlier about blues. Um, what impact does colour have generally on our happiness? I think it has... Um, it has a huge effect. Um, obviously, irony is we've obviously met over colour psychology. Um, is that one is is that I find that clients will have an emotional reaction in general to colour. So you can come in and you can go, well, colour psychology says that yellow makes you happy, and then you'll have a client who goes, I can't bear yellow. I was made to wear jumpers of it in the seventies. Please, dear God, don't come in the door with that. And so there's that wrestle between what is color psychology incorrect and then what is going to make that client actually happy so it's that balance of kind of going okay what do you like let's do this let's try that and, and building a color scheme accordingly um, but I'm going to stick away from certain colors if they're talking to me about you know well actually I find that I'm really frantic I find that I'm really run off my feet the kids won't settle I'm going to stay away from hotter colors because they're stimulants they're something that push you we talked about the fire I was, I was, I was going to say do you think these principles generally are, are universal well, about her about color. Certain colors have been proven to calm people, and certain colors stimulate. And, and are those? Is that something that is affected across the board, affecting all human beings? I think the thing is, is the color, the actual color psychology. They do sort of go and they research and they look at the actual reaction to certain colors that it has on people. It's then balancing against then the um i think it's that karen said this is it there's a social reaction so if you're from certain cultures like we see white as virginal we say but you know in in china it is the color of funerals uh, yes death um and so you know that's going to have a reaction to it and then we also have our personal reactions to it and um we can never really put that aside so when you're talking to a client you've got to take that into the account first because I can talk to them till I'm blue in the face about how one particular, you know, you need to have blue in your bedroom. And I do quite like to lean a little bit towards those richer, darker blues in bedrooms for two reasons. It is calming, but it is also drops your body temperature. So we go back to the circadian rhythm thing for going to sleep. If your body temperature is starting to drop, you are going to go to sleep a bit better. And blue is going to be a better thing for doing that. But so many people go, oh, I don't like blue. Oh, it's a little bit cold. I can't have it in the bedroom. Yeah, I don't actually work in Yorkshire. Um, but it, it's just that automatic reaction they have about how that's not going to be a good thing. And then I'm coming in going, well, you know, give it a go. Or do we push more for a purple, which is just a little bit warmer, but still more in that camp than a red. It's, it's looking at all of them and balancing the cultural, the personal, and actually the psychology. And how do you, how do you go about balancing clients' personal preferences um, with, with the kind of overall truism that is colour psychology? Well, when it comes to colour psychology, as Phoebe said, it's so much that is very general. Um, but you have to take everything into account with actually the client's personality. So when we say about blue in the bedroom, it's not about actually... Think about the blue, the color, but it's about the tone of color. So sometimes people react to very good to a certain tones of blue, 
but they react badly to a different tone of blue. Um, and when it comes to clients, you have to really understand what color they are more affinity to because something happens in the past that make that reaction in their way. So it's really understanding how the clients will react to certain colors. Well, I can imagine though, sometimes they're often not able to tell you they may not be aware. That's just something that kind of became embedded. I ask a lot of questions. Yeah. You ask lots of questions. Yeah. But they, and they can always answer them. They can always find out. You can always find out what it is or why it is that they... Most of the time, yes. they have a, an aversion to one yeah. particular colour. I realised that one of my clients say, I don't like orange. And her husband say, what do you mean you don't like orange? I got you an orange T-shirt. Yeah, I hate orange. Because her mom make them wear their orange dress all the time and she completely hated. She had orange cushion in her bedroom because her mom got her orange cushion and said, yeah. I don't want any orange whatsoever in my house. But if I didn't ask that particular question, the the topic would never come out. Yeah. So. I think it's the thing sometimes what I've found is I've deliberately made my design process longer. Um, and it's because how can I walk in on, on second meeting and go know you know somebody completely well yes we have a questionnaire yes we take a client brief but it's conversations where you're actually beginning a conversation starting to know people better and it's a conversation between a husband and wife and it's all come out that she doesn't like orange and why she doesn't like orange she's probably not going to naturally fill that in on the first questionnaire um, and so I've found that I'm now beginning to pace myself a little bit through a slightly slower design process because then those little things come out and it's the listening and it's listening to the subtlety and sometimes just listening to the noises they make like, huh? And you go, okay, why that? So you would build in more meetings in that sort of development of the brief stage just to kind of have those more in-depth con conversations yeah. with people. And it's that thing of um, not running to the end, um, to, you know, to the design, completely running to the end because it doesn't give them the flexibility to open up and say what is or isn't working. Mm. Um, and that I found that has been really useful because you're testing what's already pushing those happy buttons in the design process because you sure as hell don't want to find out you got it wrong after they've implemented. Yeah. Do, you, do you look for visual clues and things like their clothes? Yeah, most of the time. Mm. As, soon as, and as soon as you come inside a house, you understand more or less what colours they like. Well, that's assuming they've lived there for but, a while. Yeah, that's a new, but that's a blank also slate. if you open the wardrobes, absolutely, you see if there's some section always the same color. You, you understand that they're looking for their tone of color. They still can't find it, but that's where they are more attracted to. Yeah, absolutely. So, so if they've got, like, for example, again, go back to orange, if they've got like 10 orange dresses, they're still looking for the right one or they just like orange dresses? Um, most of the time what happens, so, um, in consciousness, we are attracted to something, to a color that means something to us, even if we don't know. Uh, because it's at the back of our brain, but we don't realize what it is. Unless someone tell you what happened and they make you analyze the event, they make you like certain colors. So most of the time we are tend to grab, the first thing we tend to grab is the color that we, we like. What impact does the use of space have on happiness? I think it's enormous. Um, it's 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 not just to do with when we talk about space, meaning it's got to be big. It's um, a lot of it. I'm dealing a lot with kind of the big kitchen extensions, and sometimes people have already put them on. So now you're suddenly looking at three rooms in one, and they walk in and they finish it and they go, "Oh, this feels really uncomfortable," and they feel very exposed and they feel very um, lost and very vulnerable. And that's their kind of instant automatic reaction to being in this big space. But then you can also end up in changing rooms. Um, and these are now deliberately designed slightly too small, especially in uh, fast fashion chains. And that you feel uncomfortable in them. You therefore trying to get out of them really quickly. The lighting's poorly. And they did say this, it was created a psychological thing called uh, changing room rage. And it's because therefore you make a really quick decision about your really cheap item, but most of the time we also leave feeling really, really, really bad about ourselves. Because you've looked at yourself in the mirror and the lighting is... The, the like lighting death. is bad. Yeah. Um, you felt physically uncomfortable being in there. And so that's, a, you know, the equation of a very small space. And then you end up in these really expansive spaces. And then you suddenly feel very vulnerable, very little, very... Um, and if you were in a woodland or in the middle of a field, you know, back in the day, that would be where you most likely could be... Attack. So how on earth do you translate into the right space? I think it's looking at creating intimate zones in larger spaces. 
So if we get into what is the rage right now is obviously these big kitchen family extensions, bifold doors, boom, straight onto the garden. Lighting pays big key. You can divide those up into their three spaces so people can feel comfortable sitting at the dining room table and they feel they can relax if you can just light this area. Also making sure that you've kind of created an element of zoning I'm a little bit of a fan of a mini partition wall um, and the idea that a peninsula can make a small divide between things. It's that creating that each zone has its own purpose, its own space. But at the same time, people do love huge spaces. It's why they're doing these extensions. So when they can switch everything on and they can stand there and they can have everyone round for their giant Christmas parties they've designed it for and they can go, yeah, it's a really big space and I'm really enjoying it. What do you think about that, Chinzia? Yeah, I agree with Phoebe. It just if you divide the, the space in different zones and with people actually using the, the space to doing different activities, you can enjoy the space but at the same time is divided and then makes the space not so big how the impression is. And I'm sure I've read somewhere that making our home sociable actually makes us happier too. Yeah, I think it's that thing of actually we're a pack animal. God, I really didn't sound like David Attenborough of interior design, <laughs> don't I? Um, we're sort of a pack animal. We want to make sure that our homes are welcoming to people. So it's just reading the, um, the Kingfisher Report, um, which has actually been put together by the people who own B&Q, who have looked at what makes us happy in our homes. And one of the biggest things which they found, they kind of broke it down into five areas. And one of them was pride. Pride was, um, I can even look it up here, was 44% was the response to what made people happy in their home. And therefore, pride is something where they want to have people come in. You know, you want to show somebody that you're really content with where you are. The other one was um, identity, that we want to feel our spaces are a reflection of us, that it shows us our life that we've led, the people that we love in photos, the places we've traveled, and that goes hand in hand with the pride. And yeah, we love to have people come in and spend time with them. They are part of our identity. And what about storage? Can storage make people happy? Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Most of our clients are unstressed because they keep moving one stuff to another. They don't know where to put it. Kids leave everything everywhere. And the first thing they say, we need storage. So absolutely, if you have the right storage, your life will change. You, because you, you actually have space mm. rather than clutter everywhere. And we know that clutter makes you stressed. And then following back on from what Phoebe was saying about pride, it's very hard to be proud of a space that looks like a tip. Absolutely. Okay. I actually um, had a client one day say, I'm not inviting people in in my kitchen because I have my kitchen, I have my house. And her husband said, you never invite people. That's that's why she actually say it's really sad isn't it yeah it is sad because you actually think that a house has to be your happy space where you can be yourself you want people to say come and see me you know that's my story that's my personal brand they don't because they're saying sorry i don't want to see what i'm actually at home and i think the other thing with storage is is this i see it as, as two things so it is absolutely vital to have good storage of all different varieties. Um, you know, we've got the big stories for the clothes and the, you know, big cupboards. But I have a question on my questionnaire, which goes, what are your clutter monkeys? And clutter monkeys are the things you just pop places. And they are the things that grow as well. The, the little pile of paperwork in the kitchen. The heaps of stuff. Yeah, the, the Lego that the never spare quite... room. I know, <laughs> the spare room. Yes, it's just a storage room. And so I start by asking, what are your clutter monkeys? Because people don't tell you. And then suddenly you go, you know what, we'll put a basket underneath the coffee table. Because if you make access to the storage, then people use the storage. You can provide it to your blue in the face. But if it's a bit of a tricky thing for them to use, it, it's not going away. No, because people are so time poor. It has, you have to make it effortless for them to, to tidy up after themselves. And also, I suppose, to, to get their kids to tidy up after themselves too. Because I know for a lot of women, children dumping stuff all over the place can be an enormous source of stress. Well, I think that was the thing which they found in the UCLA report where they did it um, a couple of decades ago and they looked at family homes in America as if they were doing an anthropological study. And the highest thing which came back was the stress levels which people had to the clutter that was in their home. They took swabs and measured their cortisol and they were on the same level as post-traumatic stress disorder. Wow. And they were predominantly, they found it was higher in the women than in the men, um, the fact that they were going, oh my God. Now, if you do look at the pictures from the UCLA, it stressed me 
because these people had a lot of stuff. Um, but you've got to take that into account. And then it's, it's actually analyzing what people own and how they want to store it. Because what makes us really happy in our homes is the ability to spend time with our family, not spending our life picking up their pants. And also, also kids, if they live in a messy home, when they grow up, they're going to be messy with the homes, like a, a chain. So it's what we bring back for how we lived in our parents' house. If it's family time that makes people happy, what else can a designer do to encourage family time? Um, it's spaces that bring people together. Um, it's, I remember it was really strange. It's my mother's cousin who once said, oh, the bigger the home, the more disjointed a family because everyone flees to their own spaces. And I always thought that was a really sad thing to think of. So it's actually creating communal spaces, spaces that bring people together, the, the, the dining room table where you do sit down as a family. I think it's creating spaces which people can easily work in because if you're spending your whole life picking stuff up, you're not spending time with the people you want to live with and, when you, and you love very much. But also, I suppose, things like just the ergonomics of kitchens and stuff. Yeah. It's really important to make sure that everything, not just the storage, every element of the home has to function effect effectively to maximise the amount of horrible cliche, I know, but quality time that people have to spend with, with each other. Absolutely. Um, I always look at it when I'm kind of doing the kitchen layouts as I look at the three tasks and one of it's unloading your shopping. Well, if that's hard work and that takes you a long time and suddenly you just get, oh, I can't be bothered to put that last bit away. It's cooking a meal. You know, the more of a journey you're making around your kitchen, the longer it takes, the more stressful it is to do. And then it's the final thing. It's the washing up, the putting away. Yet again, if that task becomes onerous, it well, we'll leave the dishes happen. till the morning. Yeah. Small things, but it all adds up. Yeah, no, I can see that. Absolutely. Yeah. Is there anything else that we could offer as advice for our room full of hungry designers here? I think, interestingly, it can sound like we've got more tools than everybody else, but we realise if you're designing well-put-together homes, they are naturally going to be a little bit happier than badly designed homes. Um, and I find it phenomenal to walk out of a door and know that someone's life is a little bit better because of the work that I've done. Or you, you bump into them in 12 months' time and they go, oh, my God, you changed my life. Yeah. And it, it, um, I think one of the ones which I watched more recently is, is I had a client who um, came to us and she'd just gone through, you know, a, a bit of an old ropey divorce and stuff like that and was living at that time in a rented accommodation. She had uh, two older kids, but a new partner had two younger kids. So she wasn't going to be creating a classic family home. She was looking at a new moment in her life. And so putting that home together for her um, was so exciting to do. And one of the smallest things we did was up the stairs, we did a wall a yellow. And yellow can be a very stimulating color. It's a joyful color, but it can be almost a bit like spending too much time with, a, with an over-enthusiastic friend. They're great down the pub, but you possibly don't want to have them in your flat. Um, and so we did it down the stairs, so it's a space she passes through all the time. And it's really yellow. And we then made it her gallery wall. So it's got pictures she's inherited from her family. It's got photos of her kids. It's got artwork she's bought now. And I call it her wall of joy. And when the decorator was painting it, he did the usual decorator thing. Yeah, I'll give you two weeks and you'll be back and I'll be repainting that. She went, no, 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 I'm going to do this. And we painted it and we did the styling of it. And she says every time she walks down those stairs, it really makes her happy. And it feels like just that ray of sunshine. And I thought, that's why I do this. Um, I had once a client that she, when she moved into the flat, she was so stress and depressed actually and she said I really want to change job but I can't be actually I can't be bothered to start starting again so we did the flats and uh, she said actually got a new job I make you your design make me wanted to do something with my life wanted to start again she passed the exam she got a new job can't say better than that yeah thank you very much thank you I could have sat and listened to that for hours, but I know you're all dying to ask questions. So if you want to stick your hand in the air. Hello, I'm Hi. Sarah. I'm an interior designer. 
Uh, I am interested in geomancy and old geomancy like Feng Shui and Vetsu, and they have a lot of wisdom that have been received through the cultures. I want to ask you if you have integrated any of those ideas in your work, and if they work in our modern society. Some, some, sometimes, yes, but if you see all the old culture, doesn't matter the name, they all say the same thing. It comes from ancestors, so how you live in, in nature. So if you, for instance, you design a study, most of the time you had to face the door because you, you don't want the, someone that is behind you. And that is an feng shui, it's all in many cultures. So the idea is always the same. It's actually learning from the elements of nature. I introduced that in our home and see how we react to such elements, even in your instinct. Would you like to know who is coming through the door or not? Uh, if you have uh, windows that, for instance, are not good, you always, every little noise you will hear in your brain say, is it someone's coming in? What is going on? So make sure you change your windows. So it's more little things, doesn't matter if you or another name, but they do comes everything for the same elements. Yeah, and I really like Feng Shui and, and when I first branded myself as a holistic interior designer the first thing which people used to say to me goes oh it's not like Feng Shui and stuff so I went oh I better read a lot more um, so I sat down and read all about it and the one which I loved was the fact that we were doing a lot of it anyway mm. so they talk about the yin and the yang and the balance between everything well that's actually just fabulous decorating that you've got a lot of masculine stuff but you've got to lighten it with just a touch of the feminine and you've got a lot of feminine stuff you've got to you know balance it with a touch of the and the masculine and then it's the balancing your five elements so that you know certain ones work better with other ones we're kind of instinctively doing this and what you also find with some of the more neuroscience is a lot of things they talk about in the feng shui there's a massive crossover it's like the scientists have just caught up to the guys who've been talking about this for over three thousand years even the orientation of buildings in in feng shui you know was designed to capture the maximum amount of light it's kind of designed to capture that and then they sort of say if you point your farm in this direction you'll have good crops you're going well yeah because you're going to have the most sun and you're going to have the most rain it's there's a certain amount of logic yeah. um do i think that if i put a cactus in my relationship corner my my marriage is going to fall apart possibly not but i am the, still the person who might move it somewhere else just because i'm a little bit like that <laughs> thank you thank you any more questions Hi, I'm Michaela Best. Uh, I'm a designer as well at W9 Design. Um, I was interested uh, in, I think, Phoebe, you mentioned the bigger the house, the more disjointed the family. Uh, and uh, I work in London and I'm dealing with three or four story Victorian terrace houses all the time. And I wanted to ask the panel if they could perhaps give us an example of how you would approach a redesign for a family dealing with, you know, children from young through to teenager and beyond and how you create a space that's flexible but keeps a family together. Okay. I think one is is with kids. I do I do a lot of family homes and um, I think it feels to me because I've also got kids, so I'm going I'm going through the process. Um, the kids change. And so what is going to bring you together, you're more likely to be together with your toddler because they need to be near you and their stuff's going to be in your personal space. And then as they begin to get older, they begin to gravitate to their own space. That is also necessary for their own um, ability to build their own personalities. You know, as they're a teenager, they're not going to be glued to you. They're becoming their own people. But it's, I, I kind of think taking TVs out of everyone's bedroom is a very sensible idea because it kind of lures them out. <laughs> I think it's creating spaces um, where there's enough room for everybody. I think it's also creating spaces when you get into slightly older kids where they actually feel it's their home and they can bring their friends home, but they can have space which is in the public areas that they are allowed in. And I think one of the other th final ones, which I used to say, is to make the kids feel welcome in the spaces. The, a lot of the products we put in there, if we're getting too precious about them and so freaked out that they're going to put chocolate 
up the size of our 10,000 pound coffee table. It's gonna just lay an element of stress beyond belief on parents and kids and then suddenly no one feels welcome at all. So it's looking at it on many different levels. And you get those ghetto rooms, you know, the, the best room that nobody ever sets foot in. The and the trouble, the trouble, the trouble with, with, the, with the Victorian houses, you know, you do get these odd corners. It, it can be very difficult to actually find meaningful uses for some of those areas because we don't live the way those houses would, the people that those houses were designed for lived. I will definitely ask, do a very good brief with the client, see how they want to see themselves in the house in, in the future. Because you need to see as well if it's a house it's just for a few years or if it's a long-term house. And then I was, you know, see what's... Because every kid is different. So as well, what is the personality of the kids? How they're going to leave the house as well? Because don't forget, it's not just the parents, but the kids that leave the house. So we need to make a help before them as well. And most of the time, they know more um, than the parents do. So they're very... De- uh, they know exactly I want this, this and this and no one asking first. So get the kids as well to design the house and decide where they want to stay. And there's something that can be easily changeable for sure because as Phoebe said, they, they, they change when they grow. So something that is not 100%, that's going to be for the next few years, but you can adapt to changes. I think the other thing is, is really asking lifestyle. It's that first question, how do you live? How do you want to live? What are, you know, those are the things. So when you're kind of going, understanding who they are. And what I always find interesting is parents never involve their parent, their kids in the, in the questions. So how can they and create inviting spaces for them if mm. their voice isn't at the table? Very good. Any more questions, please? Hi, Kay from Houseology here. This is a little bit of a follow-on question actually from the last one. Um, more and more we're seeing that those kids, once they've grown up, still want to remain in the house. And I would imagine that's even more common here in London. Um, is that starting to become part of the conversation, how you design the house to accommodate grown-up children? Uh, who or or how you get rid of your grown-up children in some instances. What can we do to actually push them out the door? You make their bit unhappy and you're a bit happy. <laughs> Well, I have clients actually say, I, my kids went out and now they move in again. Mm. Um, so then they had to accommodate the kids going back in um, and they were happy to move out so they can redesign the house, you know, having problems with kids and then the kids go inside again. Um, but I believe that if the parents and, and, and kids, or no more kids anymore, um, they live well together and the house is well designed it can be socialized all together but they can have their own space as well because don't forget the house is about their own space not just together if they can find their own space there and people can design that it will be great so most of the time kids say oh i love the house i want to go back in I feel like I should um, also to say it matters whether those kids are looking to be more transitory. Um, so some of them are going, I'm going to be here for three months, six months. They're actually, the goal is to take this time to move out. And then there's times where you suddenly go, they're not going. At which point you've got to kind of go, okay, we're four adults living together. We need to design the space to be four adults living together so that there is harmony because you don't want to be falling out. Does anyone else want to ask a question? I'm Alison Holland. I'm from Nottingham. I run Alitalier Interior Design and Architecture. And I've been very much into the neuroscience of design and how it appeals to the senses, not just visually, but well-being is a really big thing in the workplace, let's say, and in the home. And it's about, you know, not just visual, it's, it's sound, it's how you create in large spaces, you know, those intimate areas, but intimate as far as like the sound waves go as well um you know sort of like how it travels how what textures you use what materials you use to to baffle the sound so that you still can create those intimate corners within your larger spaces yeah i think i I don't think it's something that interior designers generally are sufficiently switched onto yet as acoustics i think it's coming but i think it's something we're just learning about now how important is acoustics in your design chinzia well, it's quite important. I had a client where actually a room was next door to the kids and there was a little window. So they said, I'm going to hear the kids all the time. So we actually did put some uh, uh, foam wallpaper. There was a 3D foam paper because it will absorb the noise and they said they can't hear anything. Um, and we don't forget that the house has to be lived with the five senses. So 
you want you have to explore the client as well say what they want to hear and what they don't want to hear uh, like for any other sensor so technology is out there uh, if he, the clients want something specific that is quite good supplies that can help you with that so there's always a problem maybe in a house, but there's always a solution. So I'm doing a lot of the kind of the big kitchens and I'm being brought in retrospectively and they're quite echoey because they've gone hard surface, hard surface, hard surface. And we get this real tin which comes in and it's uncomfortable. It's just phenomenally uncomfortable. And as you said, it doesn't take much to resolve it. It's soft upholstered chairs, it's curtains. We've then got the light streaming in. So they're uncomfortable, they're baking hot, they can't see their computer. So suddenly we're adding a lot of voils, you know, and, and they've been frightened of it because they're going, is that net curtains? Is that net curtains? And you're going, no, it's voils and they're beautiful and they'll hang nicely and they'll drink the noise, which is driving you bonkers. And you also mentioned about touch so textures and materials how does how does that affect people's mood well, i always like to layer a room anyway um so the light bounces around differently um you get that feeling of kind of you know some mats some shine some you know some chunky texture and um, that also kind of also i think it's talked about in, in, in feng shui the idea of this kind of you know the layering of everything and working it all together um I think it's one just a really lovely, lovely look. <laughs> and it's also the fact that we feel that there is enough to be touched and enough to be tactile. And it doesn't, it stops a room from being flat as a pancake. And people love touching, love touching everything they have in a house. If you actually choose a fabric that the client feel uncomfortable with, they're going to hate that the piece of furniture or the sofa or the upholstery. So make sure that the clients like the materials uh, because not everybody likes every materials that's on the market. Some people is allergic or something. Mm. So you have to make sure because some people say, oh, that's so nice and soft. And so I really can stand here all day and relax. Some people say, I really can't stand there. So that's important because we tend to touch everything. Big round of applause, please. Thank you, Chinzi and Phoebe, for sharing your insights with us. Thank you also to Decorex for hosting us and to our wonderful audience and to our pod partner, Trade at Houseology, for their support today. I hope you've enjoyed it. Yes, in fact, we have an exclusive offer today for podcast listeners. Trade at Houseology are offering new trade account signups, an additional 10% discount on selected brands for first orders placed before the end of October. You can sign up via the link in the show notes or contact trade at houseology.com to receive your discount code. And remember, you can find the interior design business on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and on-demand services everywhere. We're on Twitter at IntDesignPod, and on Instagram and Facebook at Interior Design Business Pod. This episode of the Interior Design Business is a Wildwood and Alfie Media production. <laughs>